microphone. You want to say hello? Come here. I'll lift you up. <sighs> All right. What do you say? Uh, say, hello, my name is Ellie. Hello, my name is Ellie. And you are listening to Asia Rising. And I'm listening to Asia Rising. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. All right. You stand down there and you be quiet for a little bit. The joys of parenting during school holidays. Anyway, where were we? A recent report put out by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change found that global sea levels have been rising at an accelerated rate. So if you could pardon the pun, let's just let that sink in for a bit. For the small island nations of the Asia-Pacific, this is hardly news. But even for larger nations, let's take Indonesia, there are significant consequences to the changing sea level. As an archipelagic state, with more than 17,000 islands stretching over 80,000 kilometres of coastline, it should be alarmed by the implications of changing sea levels. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and today's guest is a legend in the law of the sea. Hi, my name is Tara Davenport, and I am a assistant professor at the Faculty of Law at the National University of Singapore. I'm also a senior research fellow at the Center for International Law at NUS, as well as the deputy director of the Asia Pacific Center for Environmental Law at NUS. One issue with changing sea levels is that of water territory. Your exclusive economic zone, or EEZ, is measured as a distance from your coastline. This isn't fixed, so as your coastline changes, be it through rising sea levels or land reclamations, that has implications for you, your resources and your neighbours. We're here today to talk about uh, the effects of sea level rises and what that does on territorial disputes in the maritime domain. So if we could start quite broadly to start with, uh, what are the risks of climate change to the oceans? Thanks, Matt. Climate change, of course, as everyone knows, is the existential problem of our time. The oceans currently absorb 30% of all anthropogenic carbon dioxide emissions and 90% of heat from the Earth's climate system, and they play a significant role in climate moderation. However, global warming, uh, carbon dioxide emissions have increased the stress on the oceans, causing the ocean to become acidic, warm, and rise. From the perspective of climate change risks to the ocean, the three major ones are ocean acidification, ocean warming, and sea level rise. Mm. And these changes can have significant impacts on ecosystems and biodiversity. For example, fisheries resources, you know, the world is so dependent on fisheries resources for livelihood and for their food needs. But of course, equally important is sea level rise and the threats posed to coastal populations. And this includes risks of flooding, seawater intrusions, increased storms. And from a maritime entitlement perspective, sea level rise can impact your maritime entitlements as maritime entitlements can only be generated from land. In the most extreme scenario, uh, features that qualify as islands are completely submerged and populations have to be relocated, and that territory loses its maritime entitlement. Okay, so as it stands at the moment, the way that it works is that your territorial claim is contingent on a certain amount of distance out from the land. Is that correct? I would probably frame it in a different way. I Mm. would say that... Under the Law of the Sea Convention, any maritime entitlement has to be based on land territory. Mm. Under the Law of the Sea Convention, you are entitled to a 12 nautical mile territorial sea 
based from your coast, from baselines that are drawn along your coast. Uh, the same goes for an exclusive economic zone where you have sovereign rights over resources, as well as the continental shelf where you have sovereign rights over uh, seabed resources. Thus, all maritime claims or entitlement is generated from land territory. If there is sea level rise, this pushes your baseline further landwards, right? which means your maritime entitlements can diminish and decrease. And as I said earlier, in the most extreme uh, scenario, your maritime entitlement can completely disappear because your territory has disappeared. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that means that as there is uh, climate change and there is sea level change, this is going to generate more maritime disputes. Possibly. Possibly, Uh, (laughs) Yes, possibly. I think the issue is at the moment that um, international law and particularly the law of the Sea Convention does not have a clear answer as to what is the impact on sea level rise on baselines and maritime entitlement. Okay, so how does it deal with it right now then? So the law of the Sea Convention, of course, which is the constitution for the oceans, right, allows states to claim maritime zones. All these maritime zones have to be claimed from a baseline. Under the law of the Sea Convention, the normal baseline is your low water line that is along your coast. If there is sea level rise, it goes further landwards. This means a diminished maritime entitlement for territorial sea and exclusive economic zone. The issue is whether states should be able to permanently freeze their baselines and their outer limits of the maritime zones so that they are unaffected by sea level rise. Mm. And that is one of the issues that is being debated at the moment. Of course, if they are allowed to permanently freeze their baselines and their outer limits, this doesn't reflect the reality of the coast. Some argue that it's actually contrary to what the Law of the Sea Convention intended, right? The Law of the Sea Convention intended ambulatory baselines, right? That it follows the coast. Mm. So this is the major issue that we as an international community are grappling with today. With its multitude of countries uh, Mm. with a focus on coastline and island-based populations, there are particular implications in Southeast Asian states. So how does the change in the sea level affect that region specifically? Okay. It is very well documented that rising sea levels will impact the population and economic activities of Southeast Asian states, particularly the ASEAN member states. Mm. Um, And this is because we are a a very low-lying sort of continent. Um, There are huge activities that are are conducted along the coast. Uh, We have very high population. Many coastal regions are actually sinking from tectonic processes. Vietnam, Indonesia, and Thailand are projected to be below annual coastal flood levels by 2050. Singapore could experience a mean sea level rise of about one meter by 2100. So I would say that um, sea level rise is a very serious problem for Southeast Asian states. Mm. What are some of the approaches that Southeast Asian states are taking then to adjust to sea level rise? So I think in this respect, I can make three general observations. Mm. Um, First, that Southeast Asian states have made no express statements in relation to the changing of baselines in response to sea level rise, either individually or as a group. So they haven't said anything explicitly about what they think about, you know, whether baselines should be ambulatory or should be permanently fixed. The second observation I would make would be that Southeast Asian states appear to be focusing on land reclamation, coastal fortification, and other means to artificially or naturally maintain coastal areas. But it should be remembered that this is very expensive 
And again, not all Southeast Asian states would have the capacity to do so. Third, it appears from various actions and statements of Southeast Asian states that um, they prefer the permanency of maritime boundaries that have already been agreed or concluded with, right? So that's different from baselines, right? If you have a maritime demarcation agreement with your neighbors, I believe from the Southeast Asian perspective, these should be permanent and should not be changed, even if there is some sort of change in coastal conditions. Okay, so if there's a, a focus like in some Pacific Island states mm-hmm. of legally fixing boundaries on a permanent basis, this is, you know, even if the sea level rises, those boundaries mm-hmm. will still belong to that community. Can you tell me about that process and are there lessons that can be learned from this approach? It is a very interesting development that is happening. The Pacific Island states, I think they have adopted a very coordinated and unified position on fixing and depositing geographical coordinates of maritime baselines and limits. They've wanted to conclude outstanding maritime boundaries as soon as possible. They maintain and argue that uh, baselines and boundaries determined in accordance with the Law of the Sea Convention should be maintained in perpetuity. They have adopted a strategy document aimed at developing a unified regional effort that establishes baselines and maritime zones so that areas could not be challenged or reduced due to sea level rise, right? So I think this is an attempt to really preempt the problem. They're really thinking far ahead. They're attempting to develop some form of customary or regional customary international law, which will play an ultimate role in what the ultimate rules that are going to be adopted. Mm. But could you conceivably come to a point in the future where an island has has disappeared due to sea level rise, but there is still an existing territorial boundary there? Yes. With no one to make use of it? Yeah, I think that is one of the real issues, a practical issue that everyone is facing at the moment. If you have the maritime entitlement, how are you supposed to exercise it? I think this is something that they still have to figure out. And this is one of the problems, right? One of the disadvantages of permanently fixing baselines. But I would say that the possibility of land being completely submerged is probably many, many years into the future. So we still have time, Mm. right? But there could be, of course, either their fishermen are still allowed to uh, fish in that area. They still have the right to explore and exploit oil and gas reserves, right? That is is something that belonged to them originally. And just because they don't have uh, the territory from which to exercise that, they should still be able to because of the permanent fixing of baselines and boundaries. Mm. So at that point, it becomes about resources and the access to yes, that space. exactly. Okay. So there seems to be a lot of contests over the seas then, both in terms of land features, maritime boundaries, and resources. So what is driving these disputes? Can you take us through that a bit? Sure. I presume you're referring to the sovereignty and maritime entitlement disputes, um, particularly over the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. Uh, Those are the most complex. There are also disputes over the Paracel Islands between China and Vietnam Mm. and Taiwan. But to give a bit of background, there are approximately 140 features scattered across the South China Sea. Some of these are islands, but the majority are low tide elevations, reefs, or, or even fully submerged. Right, There are competing sovereignty disputes between several claimants, including China, Taiwan, Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, and Brunei. Under the Law of the Sea Convention, offshore features which are above water at high tide, right, they're called islands. They are entitled to a 12 nautical mile territorial sea, a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, and a continental shelf. Mm. However, if the island is incapable of human habitation or an economic life of its own, 
they are considered rocks only entitled to a 12 nautical mile territorial sea. Right, so in the South China Sea, there are not only competing sovereignty disputes, there are disputes over the entitlement of these features to uh, maritime zones, right? So for example, China, uh, I would say, uh, would argue that all these features are entitled to uh, the full suite of maritime zones under the Law of the Sea Convention, whereas other Southeast Asian states would argue that these are only rocks, only entitled to a 12 nautical mile territorial sea. This was actually affirmed in the 2016 South China Sea Award, where the arbitral tribunal did find that to the extent that any feature is above water at high tide, mm. its territory, there are rocks. They're incapable of sustaining human habitation or an economic life of its own. Okay. Yeah. But the added element of that, I suppose, is that if you reclaim enough land around mm-hmm. a rock, it can suddenly support a community or an, yes. an outpost or a listening station or, or anything along the lines of that. Yes, that is very true. Yeah. Um, the South China Sea Award uh, actually found that you would look at the original status of the uh, feature. Okay. Right. So you would not look at how states have fortified them or whether it's, you know, in their original condition, could they have supported a human population? Mm. Right. There have been critiques on that particular aspect of the award. But as of now, that is the only interpretation we have of whether an island is a rock entitled to 12 nautical miles or a fully entitled island entitled to the full suite of maritime zones. Okay. So in all of this talk of entitlement, though, Mm -hmm. you've got different interpretations. And in particular, China, maybe not regarding all aspects of that interpretation yes so this is where i think disputes come into all of it can you explain that murky territory to me a bit yes it is very complex right because of course the features the offshore features if there were an eez that is claimed from these maritime features they overlap with exclusive economic zones and continental shelves claimed from the mainland coasts of the Southeast Asian states. Yeah. Right? So because China has refused to accept the South China Sea Award, I would say that there is still quite an area of dispute, right? So China's claiming that they have rights uh, based on not only the EEZ, but on some form of historic rights in the exclusive economic zones of other states. It is not clear how this is going to end, mm. uh, how this is going to be resolved and whether it's going to be resolved in the immediate future. Okay. And what about sea level rise within this kind of area then? How could that further complicate things? Yes. Uh, oh, <laughs> that is, um, you know, an old boss of mine used to say, if, you know, if the islands are completely submerged and there's no issue, right? There's no sovereignty sure. yeah. from which to claim um, anything <laughs> That from. sounds very optimistic. Yes. Uh, but again, I think it's even more complex, right? Um, the answers are, are really not straightforward. I will start off by saying that many of the claimant states in the South China Sea have actually fortified the features that they occupy mm-hmm. so that the possibility of these features being completely submerged is probably quite unlikely. But the question is, in terms of ultimately for overlapping entitlements, you have to have maritime delimitation. You need to have some form of baseline. What is the baseline, right? What is the low water line? Should you take the baselines of original features or should you take the artificially expanded features? That's one issue. Uh, The second issue is China is claiming or Chinese scholars are mounting the argument 
that the Spratly Islands should be entitled to uh, draw straight archipelagic baselines around the features. In terms of sea level rise, again, what is the implication of this if these features are submerged? I think the major issue that I was really thinking about was, you know, we talk about the Pacific Island states. We understand why they want to permanently freeze their baselines and outer limits. It is a justice issue, right? They didn't contribute to climate change, but they are the ones who are uh, disproportionately suffering. Yeah, And they have coastal populations that they need to protect, right? These features, they're isolated, right? They're in the middle of the South China Sea. I mean, they do have, of course, military populations. There is fishing around them. But with the same sort of justice, legitimacy, stability arguments that apply to the Pacific Island states and other um, small island developing states which are affected by sea level rise, should they apply equally to these features that are scattered you know, across the South China Sea, uh, which don't have really developed coastal populations? Um, mm. I think this is something that we really have to interrogate further. Yeah. And the possible abuses uh, that might arise. Mm. The problem, I guess, at the heart of that is how do you define which land masses, which islands yes. uh, will fit this criteria yeah. of, of having these sort of boundaries and not. So can you tell me about the existing legal framework then? How can it be better equipped to arbitrate in these matters? Um, of course, we always start with the Law of the Sea Convention. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Law of the Sea Convention was negotiated at a time, I think, where sea level rise was not sort of a huge problem. I mean, I think they knew about it, but they weren't really thinking about it. Climate change is not explicitly addressed in the Law of the Sea Convention anywhere. Mm. But I do believe that uh, with evolutionary interpretations, there can be an answer found. And I think that the processes that are going on now, you know, which started with the International Law Association, which is sort of a private group doing codification, now under the remit of the International Law Commission, which is the body of experts which is tasked with codifying international law, I think international law, the processes are working, mm. right? We have states giving their views on what the situation should be. Uh, we have counter views. So I think it's an iterative process again. And ultimately, the ILC hopefully will um, adopt a resolution or come to some sort of guidelines. Uh, this may form an international treaty, right? But it's going to take a long time. I was about to say, this sounds like a very lengthy process yes. with a, a lot of competing people involved. Is there time for this sort of process to happen? Yeah, I mean, I know you, you know, international law is remarkably slow. <laughs> uh, you know, we're always falling behind technology, behind climate change. I would say, yeah, there is some urgency to it. But I think the processes have to play out because if you adopt a rule or a principle that doesn't have sort of a large measure of acceptance from the majority of states, then it's not going to be complied with. It doesn't have legitimacy. Mm. Um, so I think that, I mean, of course, we can't take all the sweet time in the world, but we do have to have those discussions, time for those discussions and for people to voice their opinions. And I think this increases the, the legitimacy of the whole process. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say was also that there are several sort of, I guess, more legally binding initiatives in terms of trying to seek advisory opinions from international courts and tribunals. Mm. So there's uh, one driven by Vanuatu uh, for the International Court of Justice. Uh, there's one currently being discussed before the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea as in to propose a legal question to the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea on these issues. And 
it could very well be the effect of sea level rise on maritime entitlement might be one of them. That was Associate Professor Tara Davenport, Deputy Director of the Asia-Pacific Centre for Environmental Law at the National University of Singapore. And you've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, please subscribe or leave a review. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. This podcast was recorded in Singapore and produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. Listener.